Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Chainalysis recently reported that 2022 was the biggest year ever for crypto hacking, with $3.8 billion worth of digital assets stolen over the course of the year. The majority of the funds came from DeFi protocols, and it made me want to go looking for a solution. Is there an improving outlook for DeFi cybersecurity? My next guest, David Schwed, is Chief Operating Officer at Halborn. We get into the details behind the headline grabbing numbers, and we talk smart contract audits and why you can't just rely on an audit alone to protect you from cyber attacks. David shares insights into topics like key management, the unique vulnerabilities of cross-chain bridges, and the need for decentralized projects to prioritize cybersecurity first. If you're looking for a detailed recap of 2022 crypto hacks, then head over to the Chainalysis blog. The team published a recap of the ups and downs of the year, including the biggest month on record, October, when $775 million was stolen in 32 separate attacks. As always, Always, the link is in the show notes. It seems like 2022 was the year of security compromises across the crypto ecosystem, in particular in DeFi and bridges. So on today's show, I'm joined by David Schwed, COO of Halborn, the leader in advanced blockchain security. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm going to guess a lot of people listening to this are not day-to-day in the security world, particularly the crypto security world, and so they may not be immediately familiar with Halborn. Maybe let's start with what does your company do? When should you get called in? Because we do get a lot of builders who are, are working in crypto. What's the right time to get you guys involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Halborn, really quickly, you know, we're focusing on the convergence of Web 2 and Web 3 threats. You know, so we work with some crypto native organizations as well as other large enterprise organizations that have Web3 projects, and we'll work with them to secure the entire ecosystem of that project. You know, we don't narrowly focus, say, on a specific area like smart contract auditing or a code review. We'll look at really any threat to that particular project, and then we'll offer security services around it. But, you know, your first question is absolutely amazing because, you know, it's one of the battles that I have with a lot of our clients and prospects is don't bring us in after you've done something already. You know, security should be done by design, foundationally. I like to use analogies a lot when I'm explaining things. And you know, it's very similar to if you're building a house. You have an architect and you're building a house, you're, you frame it and you build the house. You can't afterwards say, I want a bathroom over here. Maybe we didn't lay the plumbing correctly or there's not enough electrical. So it's very similar when it, when it comes to security. You can always uplift a project afterwards by adding on certain type of security controls, but there are certain aspects of security that have not done correctly from the beginning. It's not something that you can always add in after the fact. So I always advise clients engage Halborn or firms like Halborn, or, you know, again, hire your CISO. Don't wait for that second round of funding to then bring in a CISO. Security needs to be done right by design. And if done correctly, especially in the crypto and the Web3 world, security is a differentiator on projects. I would be using and explaining how secure a particular project is as a way to differentiate myself from some of my competitors. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point in a world where we see, you know, many of the DeFi protocols are open source and have been cloned extensively at the code level or the function of the automatic market maker or some other, you know, liquidity pool structures. You can find lots of implementations there. I think today, many of them compete on available liquidity or types of tokens supported. But frankly, you know, at a personal level, security is the number one differentiator, right? Because you might might make an incremental marginal return by interacting with an exotic token, but you can lose 100% if security is not done right. 
hundred percent. And it's actually something that I always, you know, talk about is yield has to come from someplace, you know, unless you're printing tokens out of thin air, like some unfortunate organizations were doing last year, the yield has to come from somewhere. So what that means is they're either not spending the money on their security budget, or they're not hiring in certain areas, or they're taking some, you know, fast and loose approaches to how they're setting up their infrastructure from a resiliency perspective, that extra, you know, hundred basis points is being squeezed out of. If something feels too good to be true, or, you know, this is, you know, 15% return, again, money doesn't get printed out of thin air, it's coming from someplace. So be smart and be pragmatic about it. Don't invest in these projects or utilize these protocols and then turn around and complain when, you know, there's a security breach. Like the writing is on the wall with some of these projects. Absolutely. I feel like I should have a box full of t-shirts that says, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is, and just hand them out all over the place. That's the thing many of us learned the hard way in 2022. I'm super curious, you know, looking at your background, you've done an amazing number of things. You've been a CIO, you've been a CISO, you were global head of digital assets technology. You're an investor and an advisor to a number of other tech companies. How did you get into the world of digital assets? I think you started your career career actually in law and adopted tech along the way. Give us a little bit of your origin story and particularly how you got into this crazy world of crypto. So actually the law came came afterwards. So I started out as a technologist. At a 20,000 foot level, you know, my my career started in TradFi in various, you know, infrastructure, infosec roles, risk management. I credit that with the way that I, I approach technology. You know, I just, I didn't come out this as a technologist as a whole. I came out this as a technologist, a risk management professional, as well as a cybersecurity expert. So when I'm looking at projects, I'm not just looking at this, for example, of, you know, what's the best infrastructure I can put up to, you know, for lower costs or for resiliency. I'm looking at it from how do I managing all my risk to this and the risk could be legal could be regulatory could be reputational risk in addition to cyber risk so I really look at like the whole ecosystem of risk including cyber risk when I'm looking at a project so I really feel that like it's really given me like an amazing set of perspective when I'm working on certain projects but my origin story is a little bit interesting when it comes to crypto in 2008 I had co-founded a telecommunications company and one of our customers uh, was FXCM and the CIO of FXCM at the time was Ivan Brightly. And I became very close with Ivan. And again, as a technologist, I was, you know, acutely aware of Bitcoin. You know, I admittedly was rolling my eyes at it. I thought it was stupid. Um, but when, you know, I even started walking me through not the monetary value of it, but this whole concept of a decentralized ledger and the ability to cryptographically send transactions, it piqued my interest. So I remember a very awkward transaction and handed him, you know, I don't know what it was at the time, a hundred bucks, you know, when he transferred me some Bitcoin and, you know, I was doing some test transaction and sending it back and forth, you know, downloading the ledger and I became enamored with it. Unfortunately, again, not from a, I didn't think it was going to be worth anything. So I didn't buy that many of them. I just bought enough to play around with, unfortunately. Unfortunately. You know, I've obviously since since changed my view on Bitcoin and its ability to disrupt financial services or enhance or strengthen it, if you will, not necessarily disrupt it. That's when I got into crypto. So I was a fan of the technology itself from 2012. My first job was as the chief security officer for Galaxy Digital. And that also came about, again, through Ivan. Ivan at the time uh, was working for Novo. I believe it was probably like still a family office. And it was on the convergence of the creation of Galaxy Digital. And I had lunch with Ivan and he said, you know, we're looking for our first chief security officer. You know, Ivan functioned in that role as de facto because he had a security background. And, you know, I went on a couple of interviews, uh, you know, met with some of the folks. 
and just thought it was such an amazing opportunity. You know, as a technologist, one of the things that we love is, is something new, right? I don't want to do the same thing day in and day out. And although the technology at this point, I think it was 2018 when I joined, you know, it was already out for a good 10 years, it was still new and it was still emerging. And this was, as a cybersecurity professional, I couldn't just point to the NIST cybersecurity framework and just say, I'm going to go implement this. Here's the run book on how to secure a cybersecurity uh, project. So this was interesting for me because again, from my entrepreneurial spirit, it was how do I do something new that's never been done before? So that's what drew me to that as my next uh, career move. I'm fond of saying, you know, in two years at Chainalysis, I wake up every day and I learn about something that I didn't even know existed yesterday. And that pace of innovation and learning opportunity it presented for me is what's gotten me really excited about being in this sector. I'm curious, you're at Halborn helping run the business. Talk a little bit about who you all work with. I mean, I think some of the major chains like Solana and Polygon, some of the big NFT marketplaces, what's a typical engagement and is it more than just smart contract audits that you're doing, right? Correct. We're known for our smart contract audits, you know, but like I said earlier, you know, our goal is really to help our clients or, you know, I like to refer to them as partners because we're partnering together to secure the ecosystem. You know, I like to work with our partners on really securing the, the entire project. So we do work with a number of organizations that come to us to do an audit of their smart contracts so they can get that, you know, published report so they can, you know, show the ecosystem, hey, you, you can communicate with our DAP or, you know, our smart contract because, you know, it's been audited by Halborn and it's secure. You know, but some of the other engagements that we work with, with clients or our partners is, you know, we'll, we'll look at their web front end, right? Like there's always a, a front end component to adapt. Unfortunately, a lot of organizations don't necessarily focus on that aspect of the security. They're only focused on, well, like the optics of security. You know, like when you go to organizations and they're showing you, hey, we're ISO certified and we have our SOC 2 and we have all of this. I'm like, well, that's great. And like, that's for me as a client, but like, I really want to understand what are you truly doing for security? What are you doing for key management? What are you doing for custody? What we like to do is we like to advise clients on, you know, these are the other areas in addition to smart contract auditing that you should be looking at you know, like what's adjacent to smart contract, you know, custody and key management. On the other side of it is what does your CICD plumbing look like? You know, we're going to have to look at, you know, how is the code getting from the developer, you know, up to the net, right? Like there's an entire process. How are you setting up your infrastructure that's hosting your nodes, your validators, or your web front end? Like those are all different points in the project in which there could be a potential, you know, exploit. If I'm a threat actor, you know, I may not be super concerned with, you know, let me grab your keys because, you know, maybe that's not the type of attack that I'm going to be implementing. Let me look at your vulnerability on your web front end. A lot of the hacks that we're seeing aren't necessarily Web3 focused key exfiltration attacks. They're traditional Web2 attacks that have Web3 implications. I like to say that smart contract audits are necessary but not sufficient to achieve security. A hundred percent. And the other area that, you know, that I see is there's too much of a reliance on auditors as a whole to fix issues. Like the whole point of an audit is to say, hey, we're clean. We need you to come in and attest to the fact that we're clean. If we're coming in and we're finding critical vulnerabilities, that's great that we found them before you went live. But that shows that there's a root cause fundamental issue within that you know particular client's organization that maybe don't have the proper security staff or the proper security training in order how to do secure development. Like there should be multiple eyes and multiple tests on that. You know, coming from a large bank, of course we use outside independent attestation, but by the time it makes it there, it's already gone through a hundred different internal checks before we get there. If I'm working at a bank and I get back an audit report with no findings, I'm happy because that means I did my job. I've worked with Web3 clients where we'll do an audit and maybe they did a great job and we didn't find anything. They get upset. They go, well, what do you mean you didn't find anything? Like they want us to find things because they're looking at us 
as their security folks as opposed to an independent attestation. And I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in that because then you'll get like two layers of audits. You'll get the internal audit and then you'll get the external. Right now, I think like the stopgap, unfortunately, is the auditing firms coming in and doing a lot of the work that should be done natively by the project. Do you think that's a point of maturity or just like organizational scale? I mean, a lot of these project teams are sub 100 people that I've interacted with. So I can imagine that compared to, say, Bank of New York or City or any of those organizations, you just don't have the staff capacity to run a full internal audit, let alone have the expertise that you might have in a bank. It's a great point. There's a couple of things. You know, one of it is, you know, capitalization. You know, a lot of these projects, you know, they receive a, you know, a three or four million dollar seed round. You know, what are they going to spend it on? In their mind, you know, like I want to hire salespeople. I want to hire developers to build the actual product. They don't look at security as something that's going to, you know, drive business, if you will, as they look at it as a necessity. So I've met with prospects and I met with clients who've actually said the words to me, we're going to address security once we get traction on the project because we want to spend our money on, you know, actually developing the product first. I think it comes down to maturity as well is like understanding where security fits. And I think it also comes down to, you know, unfortunately budget, you know, a lot of these projects, it sounds great to raise $15 million, but you know, the budget alone could potentially be 10 to 15 to $20 million as the project scales. So I, you know, unfortunately, I think it's kind of a mix of both. And I also think, you know, from a maturity perspective, a lot of these projects are not able to afford enterprise level security people or the amount of security people that are necessary. You could have an entire team that's just networking security, an entire team that's just on data security, an entire team that's just on HSM, and an entire cryptography team, they're not going to go hire a team of 50 people. You know, the project itself, you know, only received $5 million for funding. The other side of the house is it's difficult, just like it's difficult for banks to attract Web3 talent, it's sometimes difficult for Web3 startups to attract, you know, enterprise level talent. You know, somebody who's a managing director or a director at a large financial institution who has, you know, arguably a decent amount of job security, are they going to take the risk to join a project that has enough funding just to get through 12 months to build an MVP to hopefully go back for their Series A funding? So a lot of the great security folks that have that enterprise level experience don't want to necessarily take the risk to jump into a project. And I think the thing that's always struck me about crypto specifically contrasted to all other software and application development is compromise is immediately monetizable. There is money literally built into the thing you're hacking, whereas in almost everything else, it's very indirect. If you go pick you know, a hot new application in the app store and you compromise it, in most cases, like you might get user credential information. But if the app hasn't gotten traction yet, you're really not getting anything of meaningful value. It's a limited scope. Crypto, is the stakes are so much higher for compromise. Like security seems like the one thing you just absolutely cannot skimp on. Yeah, so, so, so you nailed it. I can't tell you how many times over the past four or five years that I've said the words, transactions are immutable and irrevocable, and that these are bare assets. Whoever holds it, holds the asset. Multiple times a day do I utter those words because I think that's still something that, you know, does not resonate with, with, with certain people. Because, you know, if you look at, I um, mean, you know, I can tell you conversations I've had with some bank, you know, InfoSec people is they'll tell me, well, these controls or this security environment is good enough for X. Why do we need more for digital assets? And I'll say, because transactions are immutable and they're bare assets. And if you, you know, access them, you know, if there's a data dump of, you know, PII or NPPI or PHI, you know, whatever, you know, sector you're in, whatever term you want to use, that's not the end goal. They then have to take that information and potentially sell it on the black market or stealing credit card numbers. Or even if there is, uh, you know, someone is able to change wire info, you know, there's still the ability to potentially claw back the wire. But you're absolutely right. You know, these are immutable. They're bare assets. If somebody grabs it, which is why the threat actors are focusing specifically on digital assets now, because it removes, you know, now I have to figure out a way to, to sell what I just stole. 
fencing, I guess, if you will. In this case, it's the best hackers in the world on the bad side are now focusing on digital assets because the rewards are so great. Look at the total volume of hacks of last year in 2022. I mean, Axie Infinity alone was you know, 622 million. You know, even if they were able to stop a portion of it, hey, a 50, $100 million windfall from a hack is still greater than trying to sell pennies of a credit card dump from you know, Target. Exactly. One thing that you mentioned a moment ago, I want to go back to when you move beyond the narrow scope of just smart contract audits, you said key management. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that, but it's come up here and there where people just have terrible key management practices. I'm sure you've seen some scary stuff without naming any names. We don't we don't want to shame anybody publicly here, but talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen from the bad and like what's state of the art when it comes to key management today for for a team in crypto world. I've seen things as bad as hard-coded private keys in GitHub repos. And, you know, when I have conversations with clients, it's, you know, things are like going back to the we'll fix it later. It's easier for us as developers to not have to build up like HashiCorp Vault or you know some other type of solution in order to now programmatically grab keys and use that to sign. So while they're developing the product, it's a lot easier for them to not build these types of you know key management safeguards. So again, not building it by design or using KMS or hosted HSMs, it adds to the development lifecycle. It potentially adds a couple of new hires because a developer isn't necessarily a cybersecurity expert, so they don't necessarily understand, you know, HSMs or KMS or you know how to stand up HashiCorp Vault because it's not just enough to stand up, say, HashiCorp Vault or you know something else. You want to now create logical and physical network segmentation. You want to build monitoring for anybody accessing those VPCs if you're building it in the cloud. Like, there's a lot of layers that go into building like a key management signing service. So a lot of early stage projects are just you know keeping private keys and notepads or pass or one password although you know keep it on a ledger because it'll be a small project and like the three founders will say you know well each one of the founders has a copy of the key on a ledger and you know again that's not best practice now on the best practice <laughs> side, obviously you know that on the best practice side there's a couple of different ways of, of looking at this there's like you know looking at like a qualified custodian to hold your keys you know, or like looking at a technology solution, uh, like a Fireblocks, you know, for say that's, you know, utilizing multi-party computation. You know, I'm a huge fan of MPC. You know, I think MPC is is a game changer. You know, it's it's, it's not new. And I think that's also like, I think one of the, the misconceptions about MPC, this isn't a new technology. MPC has been around probably since, I guess, maybe the late 70s, early 80s. It's first popping up its head in crypto, but MPC technology has been around for a very long time. So it's not something that's just been newly developed. But I think one of the challenges is MPC is such a foreign concept for people to understand that they don't fully understand how to implement it. They don't fully understand how to use it. So I think that's also part of the challenge too. So I think there needs to be for some of the smaller projects, like a buyer's build analysis. Am I mature enough? Do I have the resources and do I have the knowledge and the wherewithal to build my own key management solution? Or should I be using a best in class solution, you know, a la like a Fireblocks, for example, that's using MPC technology. And for a lot of the projects, there's so much that comes into, you can't just say I'm using MPC because you can have a completely insecure implementation utilizing MPC. People's heads are spinning right now, I'm sure. The big takeaway in that last piece was don't have the founders carry around the private key on three ledger devices. That's marginally better than having it hard-coded into the dev repo, but still not secure enough. And MPC alone, while important tech, again, has to be augmented with good OPSEC practices around key management in addition to MPC. Did I summarize that? A hundred percent. You know, and, and the point with the ledgers are, it's not my go-to if you have the budget to stand up something better, but you can stand up something relatively secure with like a ledger. You know, some of the things that I would tell founders to look at, number one is, 
You know, are you taking advantage of all of the different added, you know, security features of using a ledger device? For example, you know, most people are not fully aware of the fact that you can use a, what's called a passphrase. And the passphrase functions as a secret 25th hidden seed word. And if everyone listening is, you know, not necessarily familiar with like how that works, you know, the seed, the 24 words is what's used to generate all of your keys underneath that. So that's the only thing you need to back up. So if you ever lose your ledger and you have a copy of your 24 words, you can then generate your private keys off of that. But now we get into operational security. Well, how do I safely and securely back up those 24 words? So what happens with the passphrase is, you have this 25th secret hidden phrase that you're supposed to remember. And every time you want to access that ledger device, you have to enter in that 25th C word. And if you don't put in that 25th C word, the ledger device will be unable to generate those private keys to sign those transactions. So that, you know, if the founders are going to use ledgers, I would say absolutely enable the pin for the device, obviously, also the 25th C word, and then also be really, really careful on how you're backing up your seeds because I've seen some really bad backup procedures around seed, people putting them in LastPass. Um, you know, we all saw what happened with LastPass recently. I love password managers, I do. I'm a big user of password managers, but for something that is ultra, ultra secure for me, I won't put it in an online password manager because the security is only good as the security of, of the SaaS that you're working with. And we also hear they were able to steal an encrypted version of people's database. So ledgers are great for individual users looking to custody their own funds or NFTs, particularly when operated correctly, as you were pointing out, but as the backbone for a large complex project with a lot of value locked in it, we probably want to look for a little bit more. I'm curious about something. We had the founders of Tenderly on the show recently. They're building, I think, a really powerful dev platform. And one of the things that I think they're intending to do is make one of the points you've made, bringing security into the early development practices, like core part of the architecture. They've got a transaction simulation feature built into the platform. Is that helpful in your opinion? This ability to actually simulate execution and kind of runtime vulnerabilities that people might encounter as they're actually writing contracts? hundred percent. This goes back to, you know, it's, it's two things. One is going back to quality engineering and quality assurance. Again, coming from a big bank, you know, this is something that's just, you know, BAU having environments that replicate your production environment to see how your code will interact and how it will behave under certain conditions, you know, and then you can do things like fuzzing and you can do all of these type of cybersecurity techniques to see how can it survive, you know, again, even a DDoS attack, right? Like that's something that, you know, most people don't necessarily focus on. They have to remember that there are certain threat actors that your goal necessarily isn't to exfiltrate data. It's to cause business disruption because, you know, maybe it will cause the price of a particular token to decrease or increase, you know, if they launch a DDoS attack against the Solana ecosystem. So yes, 100%, like those environments are absolutely 100% needed, you know, just to test the behavior of your, of your code to see how it's going to react. The interesting thing also is it's a tool for the bad guys to use as well. They, you know, smart contract, you know, code, you know, usually by design is, is available for open source so you can grab it. So we're in a world where the bad guys have full access to test the code, to use the same tools that we're using in order to find vulnerabilities. So it's really like a whack-a-mole game at the moment as far as, you know, trying to find vulnerabilities and patch them because the bad guys are have the same level of insight and intel that, that the good guys are having at the moment. You know, it's a little bit different than like a closed system, like, you know, an operating system like a Microsoft where it's closed source. You don't actually have access to the code. So a lot of the tools that the bad guys are using to try to find exploits, it's a little bit more difficult to find it. But if you can actually look at the source code yourself, you know, it's a huge advantage and, you know, the bad guys have those advantage. So these environments are absolutely 100% a necessity. If you're not actively testing, fuzzing and linting your code and using these simula simulation environments, you can bet the bad guys are, is what yes. I'm hearing. They'll find vulnerabilities for you. You just don't like yes. the price. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes.
Does Halborn do this? Do you guys run red team audits or penetration testing and vul- like the whole stack of cyber? I mean, we do. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we like to do for clients, you know, when we're doing, again, smart contract, we do like, you know, red team web two pen tests, but you know, when we're doing like a smart contract audit, you know, one of the things that we like to do is, you know, again, not everything is theoretical. We want to show them like, you know, there, there's a practicality for this. You know, I, I've been on the receiving end of a, of a pen test audit where I'm looking through and I'm like, yeah, technically this is a, this is a vulnerability but in the grand scheme of things, there's really no potential impact. And those, those type of reports really bother me because it shows they're not really necessarily looking at like, what is the true risk to my project? So what we like to do is when we're looking through the code and we find something that's a potential vulnerability, we'll actually also code a proof of concept exploit. So we can show our partner that, hey, listen, like this isn't just theoretical that we could do something. Here, watch this. We wrote a POC and we can actually show you that we were able to mint an unlimited amount of X. So we were able to grab the private keys. You know, again, there are many instances where we were unable to or we don't even want to because it's such a critical vulnerability to actually do it. So we can clearly show them in the code. But in many cases, you know, we will actually code the POC so we can show them that proof of concept. Would you say over the last couple of years, are you finding fewer of those critical severe vulnerabilities or is it is it going up? Unfortunately, no. I still think clients are looking for auditing firms to be their security staff as opposed to like coming in afterwards for that, you know, independent attestation. You know, coming from financial services, again, the auditing firms come in and all they do is they, you know, here's my qualified or unqualified opinion. I think that's where we need to head, but I think we're probably 12 to 24 months out from getting the people to be trained to be able to do this themselves and tools, right? Like there's no, there's not a lot of tools in place to, you know, do these automated testing and stress testing and simulated environments. It's still a a nascent technology. Well, I mean, we certainly saw that last year with the billions of dollars stolen. One of the biggest vulnerabilities that I've seen seems like it comes down to bridges, right? Like chains themselves, you you guys at Halburn have audited a couple chains, but the chains themselves, I don't recall being directly manipulated, maybe some indirect market manipulation, as you mentioned, through DDoS. But when we get down to the cross-chain movement of, of assets, it seems like much more vulnerable environments. I'm curious, what's your take on bridges? Are they necessary? Are they forever vulnerable? Or is this just like a point of maturity in the cycle and not enough of them have retained your firm services? It's definitely solvable. I think we're a little bit off from it. People are so hyper-focused on the smart contract code and not necessarily around the other aspects of security around bridges. Again, even physical and logical security and you know, standard blue team monitoring and looking for you know who's interacting with the bridge. Like There's still definitely going to be some patterns of behavior from an IOC indication of compromise or an IOA indication of attack that you could see maybe there's certain EOAs that are communicating with the bridge that are doing something that's a little bit anomalous. And then you can do some circuit breakers and you can maybe, you know, put in some blocks to block those addresses. So like, you know, in traditional firewall world, like intrusion detection, intrusion prevention, I think those, there's a lot of really cool startups in the space right now that are, that are focusing on that. I definitely have my favorites of ones that I think are going to be leading the space. I'm super excited that, you know, there's definitely people that are attempting to solve some of these problems. It's definitely not a level of maturity yet that I think it fully solves the issue. So there's that one aspect of it. You know, I think if you look at like why bridges it's a very difficult piece of technology to build because you're interacting with two completely separate layer one systems where you're moving assets from one to another. 
So there's going to be an aspect where on one side, you're able to communicate with the bridge and being able to mint, you know, a wrapped, you know, piece of token. And in order for that, you know, minting to happen or issuing have, have to happen, it has to validate that you are able to deposit on one side. So if you're looking at some of the exploits of like, well, how does that happen? So if you look at like the Nomad hack, for example, one of the checks that it's doing is it's looking for, you know, did this transaction happen? Are we actually depositing the funds in this in, or locking the funds in a smart contract so I can issue it to you on the other side? And, you know, in the, in the case of Nomad, what they were able to do is they were able to see that there was a, a logic flaw on the issuing side. So then when you pass a transaction to it and when it checked to see was the requisite amount of ETH, you know, deposited on one side before we issue on the other side, they were able to figure out a way because it was like defaulting to, um, you know, a state of zero basically from an initialization perspective. So when you show, when you showed something that didn't match, it was automatically getting approved. So once they realized this, and again, this was like a crowdsourcing hack because everybody then was, you know, figuring out that you could just very, very easily and simply just send this transaction and, you know, being able to mint it, you know, could that have been prevented? Absolutely, right? You know, again, I don't know who the auditor was or if they were audited, but, you know, these are traditional things that we look for, you know, when, you know, Hellborn specifically when we're auditing, you know, we're looking for these types of validations. And again, there's other types of controls you can put in place. Like maybe there's some like time locks that you can put in. You know, again, everybody's like wants instant gratification, you know, in today's world. Well, you know, what if I told you, hey, listen, the funds are going to get locked up for 20 minutes while, while there's, you know, an additional set of validation. I would feel as a user, you know, unless I have an instant need for liquidity or make a purchase, I'm fine waiting the 20 to 30 minutes for my funds to appear on the other side if there's going to be that extra layer of controls instead of like this instant I deposit and I want immediate access to the funds. So I think there also needs to be like a level, uh, you know, level set of expectations of like, you know, in order to have, you know, something that's truly secure, we need to build in multiple layers of checks and multiple layers of controls. And some of those are really time-based controls. Slowing down the transfer of funds, there's an issue there where people then feel like they've lost custody of something, right? Like there's a, suddenly I'm no longer in control of the funds. And so you're, I think a lot of people have this expectation of an atomic transaction. I deposit on Ethereum and I withdraw on Solana or two other chains and they want that immediate gratification because it feels like there's nothing's really left their possession. You've just flipped networks, but you're totally right. It's that attempt at speed, which is creating the opportunity for like what happened with Nomad, right? Well, I mean, I hate to break it to the people listening. Like, you know, if that atomic swap instant gratification, you know, makes them feel safer, you're still trusting the DAP. I mean, when you're giving yeah. access, you know, to that token approval to access, you know, your wallet doesn't mean that you're immediately going to get access to it. So you've already granted them access. So whether you're getting it immediately or in 20 minutes, you're trusting them. All that's happening is, you know, your anxiety disappears in a minute versus 20 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, you're not really gaining anything by the instant access to those funds other than your own anxiety going away of, you know, how my funds going to get locked up. Because again, it just boils down to, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. If, you know, if you're doing a swap on one end, you're locking up your funds and hopefully to getting it on the other side. It's a pretty amazing one. You mentioned Badger Dow earlier. We've discussed that one on the podcast before. Some of my colleagues here at Chainalysis, you know, assisted in in some of the after incident recovery. That one was amazing to me because it was a compromise related entirely to their front end. They didn't touch the core Badger contract. They were able to insert a malicious contract behind the Wallet Connect function that had an authorization that people assumed was legitimate in order to send funds 
into the Badger Bridge. And in reality, they were signing an authorization which allowed the attacker to pull funds out of their wallets. I'm curious your take on that situation. Like you mentioned at the outset that you guys kind of sit at this intersection of Web 2 and Web 3 security. That was very much a Web 2 style attack that just happened to be perpetrated on a Web 3 platform. So double clicking into the Badger DAO hack, it, you know, it really exemplifies the importance of securing the entire project itself. A lot of projects will focus on smart contracts, but they'll not necessarily focus on, you know, what are the other attack vectors. And when we look at what is the weakest point in infrastructure, you know, many times it might just be the web front end. And in the case of Badger DAO, you know, it was a lot easier for the threat actors to inject a piece of malicious code on the front end. They know clients are going to access the Badger DAO app through the website. They're going to click on the icon. And then they were just easily able to inject code in order to trick people into clicking into a malicious contract. And, you know, it's kind of similar to the, you know, to the curve hack, you know, where there was a DNS hijack. They were just redirecting users to another location. And it's not necessarily that these things are always 100% preventable, because again, I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's a silver bullet for cybersecurity and that they miss something per se. But when it comes down to a defense in depth of different types of tactics of both preventative and detective type controls, it's not enough to, okay, well, I'm using Cloudflare and I'm using a web application firewall. So therefore, poof, I'm protected and let's move on. That might be great for a SOC 2 or an ISO standard, or if you're filling out a vendor due diligence for a bank, they like those little check marks. But it really comes down to robust monitoring as well. You know, looking for these anomalies in behavior, you know, looking for a baseline of activity that, for example, for Badger DAO, you know, this is the typical interaction that they have with their clients and they're starting to see something that's anomalous to typical type behavior. That's when they'll put in a threat hunter and that's when they'll put in a red team or a blue team, you know, necessarily to kind of double click into what's going on. And I think that's an area that a lot of folks and organizations that are not necessarily doing well, they're doing a lot of preventative work, but there's not a lot that's being done on the detective side of the house. And, you know, one of the benefits that we have in Web3 is everything is open and everything's transparent. You see the transactions, you know, hitting the mempool before it actually happens. So you can actually see and watch the bad guys telegraphing certain things. One of the interesting things that was pointed out to me, uh, you know, by, by one of my engineers is also that we should be looking at test nets. You know, again, there's obviously going to be private test nets that we can see. But what we've been seeing is, you know, the bad guys are actually testing out some of their attacks on the test nets before they launch on the mainnet. Because what other better way to orchestrate an attack than to test it on the test net? Because it's arguably, you know, going to be the same code base, etc. So I think, you know, detective controls is an area over the next 12 to 24 months that I would like to see many organizations really focus their attention on. Who's doing really good stuff in the monitoring area? Like to me, I coming from a web two infrastructure world, I've been listening to people pitch me on observability and application tracing, application performance monitoring, all sorts of multi layers of security tooling from intrusion detection and prevention to web application firewalls for years. And when I look at web three, it feels like very little of that has been implemented or recreated. Are there particular tools or vendors that people should be starting to look at? Maybe this is still an emerging space where it just hasn't been created yet. It's definitely an emerging space. There's probably at least six or seven that are in the DeFi security space that are all working on this problem, you know, including Halborn. And we're actually going to be launching something uh, most likely beginning of next quarter, you know, but they're all focusing on DeFi security in the sense that they're looking at, you know, again, from a behavioral standpoint, they're looking at how smart contracts are being interacted with while it addresses EOAs and different types of activities. I'm looking for, again, indications 
situations of compromise or attacks or anomalies or you know a divergence from a baseline behavior they're all doing it similar but there's also something different to all these different tools there are certain companies that are focusing on wallet integration there are some that are focusing on browser extensions you know so if you're using metamask you know it's doing an inspection of the of the transaction before it gets signed there are other ones that are also focusing on providing api feeds for enterprises so that way they could just pass over the transaction via api and get a risk score back and then make a determination of whether or not they want to continue with the execution and they're generally still in stealth but there's definitely a few that i'm you know particularly bullish on one of them in particular is a company called hexagate uh, which i think is a great company you know i know the founding team pretty well there's another company that i think is great as uh, iron blocks uh, there's another one out there called a hyper native redefine is another company that's addressing the same issues in the space and there's a few other that are still in stealth that haven't come out with but those are the ones that i'm particularly keeping my eyes on and like i said halborn itself is also developing a tool because this is an area that we you know being asked for for clients for recommendations so we're building as a product called Trinity, which is a threat intel platform. So we're taking all of our knowledge that we've seen from the smart contract audits, using that intelligence and, and building that platform. I don't know Hexagate or Ironblock, so I'm going to have to follow up on those. We'll link to them in the show notes. Hypernative, though, is I'm good friends with the CEO, actually. So I love that they're on your radar. They're building some really cool stuff. I have a couple more questions for you. On the Oracle front, we've seen some pretty notorious, I guess, flash loan or asset price manipulation attacks happen over the last year. You guys at Halborn have blogged about better Oracle infrastructure and used some terminology that was new to me. We'll link to these articles so folks can go read the blogs in detail. But what is a TWAP Oracle or a TWAP? Point of Oracles in this case is, uh, you know, how do you accurately predict the price or, or not predict the price, but how do you show the price? And again, these are Oracles because the prices are off chain. You know, it's not necessarily something that you're, you're fully going to gather on chain. So there's two different ways of looking at it. One is time weighted average price versus volume weighted average price. And there are definitely pluses and minuses to each one. And I would actually advocate the use of both to be completely candid. They both have their advantages and their disadvantages. But the time weighted average price is looking at a single DAP or single DEX and looking through the transactions in the smart contract over a certain period of time to get that average price. The benefit is that you don't necessarily have to have an Oracle node or go off chain to get pricing from different exchanges because with volume, you're basically taking multiple exchanges and you're averaging a price. You can do that in a shorter period of time because you're getting the data from multiple sources. So that way you don't necessarily have to say what's the average price over an hour because obviously we all know an hour could be a thousand dollar difference, you know, in the price of Bitcoin. So that's why sometimes the time weighted isn't necessarily your best option. You might want to go with volume. So that's why I would advocate doing checks on both sides. Check the time, check the volume, compare the two. If there's a huge delta that's outside of your acceptable risk threshold, maybe you want to, I don't know, do a circuit breaker and maybe stop trading while you investigate the differences between the two. And there's nothing wrong with saying we're detecting some anomalies and we're shutting down trading for a minute. I think so many people are afraid to do that because it's supposed to be running 24 by seven. But at the end of the day, you know, these attacks that are happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're seeing something, it's best to, you know, shut it down, take a look at it and then re-enable. But I would definitely advocate looking at both just because of the fact that if you're using the time weighted, while you do have the benefit of not having an Oracle node, if you're doing it over the course of an hour or two hours, you know, the longer period of times, the less likely there's going to be some sort of price manipulation on the Oracle. If you're doing something on a shorter period of time, that's when you can launch a flash loan attack or, or something to try to fluctuate the price, which will then affect the price, you know, coming, you know, out of the Oracle. And if you do that over an hour period, you know, multiple blocks, it's less likely that there's going to be something that's, that's uh, happening. 
I'd love the enthusiasm, the optimistic outlook. It's rare to get that from some a security professional. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it from you, David, because you're on the front lines of all this stuff. Thanks so much for joining us and, and talking through the landscape. It was a great episode. We'll have to have you on again uh, later in the new year. Thanks for having me. Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok, where we share our favorite moments captured in the podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you're into crypto policy and financial compliance, I bet you'll enjoy our new YouTube show, Know Your Crypto Compliance, hosted by my colleagues Clark Flint Barr and Caitlin Barnett. If you're interested in DeFi hacks and all things crypto crime, you're in luck. The 2023 Chainalysis Crypto Crime Report is now available. See the show notes for the download link. And if you'd like to meet the team behind the report live and in person, then you need to join me in New York City on April 4th and 5th for the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is less than a month away. And I would say get your ticket today because I'm expecting the conference to sell out soon. As always, you can find the registration details in the show notes.